How to use latent variable models to address differential measurement problems? What are some interesting aging problems that can be addressed by biostatistics? What's the difference between epidemiology and biostatistics? Karen Bending Roche will answer all these questions for you. Dr. Bending Roche obtained her PhD degree in operations research and industrial engineering from Cornell University, and she is particularly interested in the development, implementation, and application of models for problems that include underlying or unobservable process of interest. She focuses on creating statistical reasoning needed to learn how we can strengthen healthy life and increase independence for older adults. Let's dive into this episode and see what Karen has shared with us. Welcome, Karen, to the Biostatistics Podcast. It's great to have you with us here. What a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Um, so to get started, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you became interested in biostatistics? Absolutely. So, you know, going all the way back to early, I, I was always interested in math. And so I pursued a bachelor's degree in math. But by towards the end of that, I felt that pure math was a little bit too distinguished from real life concerns and so began seeking applied math fields. I began in operations research. So that's actually what my degree is in, operations research and industrial engineering. Um, but in the middle of that whole process, I discovered that statistics is what I really enjoyed. And so um, I was privileged to uh, have my thesis research under David Rupert at, at Cornell, and then applied and interviewed at a variety of job possibilities, some of which were in biostatistics and some of which were in statistics. And the position here at Johns Hopkins uh, was just very appealing, and I've been in biostatistics ever since. I see. That sounds interesting. So how did you switch from, I guess, the industrial engineering to biostatistics? What kind of training did you get? Actually, none extra. And so I had studied some epidemiology at Cornell. Um, it was veterinary epidemiology, just as a matter of interest, um, but absolutely no real extra training. And I think that's one thing that's great about our field, that uh, the principles and the tools of statistics are, are broadly applicable. And so I learned what I needed to learn of the bio, the bio part of it as I went along. I see. That's interesting. So what are you currently working on? Can you tell us a bit more about your research interest? Absolutely. And, and they're dual, dually faceted, you know, and so in the biostatistics area, um, my greatest interest for a long time has been on measuring things that are hard to measure. And um, specifically, I have studied latent variable models. That's been, actually goes all the way back to my PhD dissertation. Um, but the thing that I'm really interested in right now is what's called differential measurement. You know, the idea that persons of the same underlying, let's say health status, may manifest that status differently um, in the items by which we measure them, whether it be questionnaire items, they may interpret questions differently. 
um, even so-called objective measures, you know, just by habits or whatever um, may perform them differently. And so the use of latent variable models to identify this phenomenon and then hopefully to address it is something I'm very interested in. Um, on the substantive side, I'm, I've been interested in aging for many years. And so uh, I'm very, very privileged, I think, to be as well recognized in the aging field now as I am in biostatistics. And in that area, I'm particularly interested in um, what's called geriatric syndromes, frailty, um, the opposite of that, robustness and resilience um, among older adults. And then my statistical interests and my aging interests intersect both in measurement, those things turn out to be hard to measure, um, but also in learning the mechanisms and the etiology that lead to frailty or maybe promote resilience. And so that's a whole other uh, interesting line of work. I see, thank you for sharing. Um, I actually have a question myself. Uh, I don't know too much about latent class analysis, but what would be the most direct difference between that and the cluster analysis since they're both categorizing people into certain subgroups? Absolutely. The main, the main difference, I think, is really the underlying theory and how that manifests in the analysis. So cluster analysis broadly just tries to group people um, in reasonable ways. But latent class analysis hypothesizes that that subpopulations exist and that we are seeking to identifying those subpopulations which exist in some sense but are difficult to measure. Um, and so then the assumptions of the model are critically important in identifying the right subpopulations. There's some that we pull off the shelf, things like conditional independence, but in, in some settings, there may be others which really should be imposed because they help to identify um, the right subpopulations. Um, and, and so that that really, and, and then finally, I would say that then those are embodied in a, a model and a likelihood, right? You know, the, that's where the assumptions and the theory get embodied. That's not to say that latent class analysis can't be used as a cluster analysis, just as a way to group people in a reasonable way. And in those cases, then the assumptions, you know, would be more convenient than linked to or a theory about populations which actually exist and those sorts of things. I see, thank you. Um, and can you tell us a little bit more on what exactly are the latent class analysis methods? Well, sure. I'll give you a, a little bit of an, an overview, you know, yes, yes. and, um, you know, so the basic latent class model is a mixture model. And um, so it's a certain kind of a, a hierarchical model where the hierarchy is over a categorical probability distribution. That, that's the idea of there being subpopulations that are discrete, um, hence, a, you know, a categorical mixing distribution. And once you have that, once once one writes down the conditional distribution given the classes and then the mixing distribution, um, it's pretty straightforward to write down a likelihood and to to fit it, you know. So 
Um, and then once you have that, it's, it's not too difficult to embed a regression structure. So that's something that I've worked on a lot. Um, you know, basically, uh, uh, mechanism for regressing those latent class memberships on on covariates, but but again, it's just a, a, a likelihood extension, and you know, um, EM sorts of methods can be implemented to um, to estimate those things. Um, there's a whole parallel set, of course, of Bayesian methods. It doesn't have to be, you know, maximum likelihood. One could implement these from a Bayesian point of view. And then there's all kinds of extensions, you know, so whether it be to accommodate these models in cluster data um, rather than independent individuals, um, so in families, for example, um, whether the outcomes now be something other than categorical items. So there are latent classes of trajectories or what's called latent profile models or basically subgroups um, where we use continuous variables to identify the underlying subpopulations rather than categorical ones. There's a whole set of methods on multi-stage models. So for example, suppose you want to just sort of estimate the classes that people are in, and then in a second stage, do a regression on those. There's a whole body of methods with those. And then finally, you know, you've probably, I'm sure you've heard of factor analysis, which is a different latent variable model. So there's models called factor mixture models, which is basically latent classes of factor analyses. So you know, it's it's really a very, very large set of methods. It does sound like an extensive set of methods. Um, yeah. If our audience, uh, audience, any of our audience want to learn more about this, do you have any recommended book or paper that you think will be a good place to start? Well, so the a, a good place to, to just absolutely start, I, I love the book by David Bartholomew, um, uh, Latent Variables, um, and structural equation analyses. I actually, um, I don't remember exactly the name, but if the, if anyone looks up David Bartholomew and latent variable book, <laughs> you know, this, this will come up. And um, it's one of the best conceptual overviews that I've ever seen. And it covers both the factor analysis schema and the latent class schema, you know, and then in terms of um, other books, um, there's a, a book by um, Ken Bolin, um, something like Structural Equations and Latent Variables, which really, really um, mostly covers the um, continuous, um, both latent and manifest variable case. Um, there's a, a book um, that was written by um, Skrondahl and... Um, Rabe Hesketh, I'm, I'm not positive I said that name correctly and my apologies to that author if that's so, but they have a very nice book um, that uh, unifies thinking about random effects models and latent variable models. Um, so those are the ones that really leap to mind as, as more overview resources. Okay, great, thank you for sharing. Um, yeah. So you mentioned that the other big part of your interest is to, um, is the aging uh, science. I searched it up. It apparently it's called gerontolo gerontology, which yes! is a very new word that I learned. Um, <laughs> thanks to you. Um, so I saw some of your 
research, basically, um, you're looking for the relationship between uh, some elder um, population and some certain, uh, for example, um, demographic factors. I don't know if I'm summarizing it correctly, but can you just uh, can you tell us more about that part of your research? Yeah, absolutely. So you're you're referring to some of of the more recent research that I've gotten right. into, and so, um, you know. Uh, this really began with a, a paper, which I think was very important. It wasn't that statistical, which was just an epidemiological study of frailty among older adults um, in the United States. And, uh, you know, the really striking finding to come out of that um, was that there are large, large health disparities in frailty by race and ethnicity. And this isn't terribly surprising, but, you know, among all the factors differentiating the prevalence of frailty, this was by far the largest. And so uh, we felt that this was important to study further. And um, so um, a, a former student and I, Thierry Usher, and some some wonderful collaborators then um, really studied the associations of frailty with race and ethnicity, seeking to understand, you know, whether these could be quote unquote explained by intermediate variables such as comorbidity, disease, BMI, um, not at all really. And um, also whether uh, there were strong effect modification with wealth or income, and maybe that was explaining it. It didn't. Uh, but but the really interesting indication was that there actually were, were real measurement differences in frailty. So this goes back to the earlier part of our conversation. And so, you know, my, my latest work then is very much more statistical. It uses latent variable models to study basically differential measurement of frailty by race and ethnicity. And, um, you know, so um, what one can do that using actually latent class analyses uh, very effectively. Um, and once again, this is really strongly evidenced and why this would matter would be if, you know, suppose that frailty um, forecasts adverse events more precisely with better diagnostic accuracy in one racial group than another, well, that could be because the, the measurement functions better in one racial group than another, could be for other reasons as well. But at the very least, it would then be something that we would need to investigate further. And that's the step we're at now, seeking to investigate that further. Um, possibly ultimately to um, develop and advocate for new measures of frailty that are more equitable um, across demographic groups. That sounds very interesting and so meaningful. Um, how do you see the result for your research to be implemented in say practical care and all these measurements? Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, in, in terms of a lot of the body of work that I've done, you know, studying the measurement of frailty, part of it is in informing clinicians uh, basically about the appropriate measure of frailty to select for a given clinical purpose that they have. So sort of a backstory is that uh, there are many, many scientific definitions of frailty out there, many instruments um, and they seem to measure quite different things. You know, if you use two of these approaches, 
the concordance among those people that are determined as frail or non-frail is not very high. And so what that means is that one needs to clearly understand what one is trying to measure in selecting a given method for measuring frailty. So that that's one implication is um, providing that guidance, you know, based on uh, the sorts of things that we learn statistically. And then in terms of the health disparities work, particularly, it really will have to do with developing you know, refined measures of frailty um, that whose performance is a lot less differential by racial groups, meaning that they, you know, among people who seem to have the same underlying frailty status, that the sorts of things that they report or are measured about their health are similar. Um, so, so once having um, that new set of measures to develop an instrument test it and then really advocate for its uptake in the field, you know, to be sure that we're guiding care for older older adults equitably. Right. I see. Thank you for sharing. Um, and I just want to say, I probably didn't dive too much into your work, but out of all the papers I read, I think my favorite one is the um, relationship between the elder population who just got marrow transplants um, the relationship between their survivalship and the clinical trial participant rate. Because I personally work on clinical trials, and I think it will really help us to understand um, the participant in incentive. And because enrollment of patients is always one big part of clinical trial, and I think that's really important work. And combining with all your frailty research, I think it's very meaningful. Thank you. Thank you so much. No, I, I absolutely super important for people to know that, you know, it, it's very, very easy to enroll the healthiest mm -hmm. older adults if one isn't careful, you know. So it's a super important message to ensure that um, a broader range uh, participates in studies. Right, of course. Um, and I guess now I want to ask more of a general question. Uh, how do you think biostatistics research will evolve in the coming years? And what are the some new developments or innovations you see? Yeah, so I, I see um, two lines of innovation. And this is not meant to be the only two. I'm sure there's many more. Um, but, but one of them is more mechanistic and, and another is more um, along a data science line. So the more mechanistic one has to do with how we define health and how we study health. You know, so I think we've done a great job of doing this descriptively, you know, and, and using convenient instruments and epidemiological studies. Um, but, but based on our work in older adults, you know, we, we have both a theory and strong indication that, you know, there's a key set of physiological systems that, that really have an overarching role in, in governing our health. And so um, the, the thing about systems, physiological systems, is that they behave a lot like machines do, um, which is to say that the parts interact and, you know, there are feedback loops and there are, you know, submodules within bigger modules. And these things can be characterized mathematically. And so, you know, if we can characterize them mathematically, then we should be able to fit the implications, you know, of the equations that characterize these systems to data. 
And so I think that statistical methods to increasingly do this are, are very, very much needed. You know, so it's sort of a marriage between biomathematics and statistics. You know, how do you take this elegant applied mathematics theory and fit it to often very messy data? I don't think we know very much about, you know, nearly enough about that. I don't think we know nearly enough about study design um, and, and feasible study design when studying health. So that that's one whole set. The, the other set really is that, of course, you know, we, we all know of the increasing profusion of data. Um, and, you know, AI and machine learning are, are rushing ahead, you know, very, very important developments. Um, but I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that, you know, statistical thinking is a critical part of that story. If we are going to create predictions that ultimately um, lead to either interventions or policy decisions or or things that are actionable, you know, and so um, continuing to move ahead in accommodating increasingly large and complex data, both in its own right, but also incorporating, you know, statistically principled ways of thinking, whether it be with respect to causal mechanisms or whether it be with respect to study design to ensure that findings are generalizable. You know, I think that's a whole nother area that I would raise up. Right. That makes sense. Um, so you spoke about the data issue. So I'm just wondering in your own research, what are some of the source of the data? And then what are usually the size of your um, database? Yes. And so, you know, I will say right away that I'm not a super big data researcher. You know, I, I tend to be more on the former side that I just talked about. And so mm -hmm. uh, my career generally has been in epidemiological cohort studies. And so the size of those data sets has been everything from approximately 500 to approximately 10,000. That That's about the range of the the data that I work in. Although I will say that for these highly mechanistic models, you know, the data to inform those models is very, very detailed, you know, so mm -hmm. not the thing that generalizes easily to a, a massive study. And so, you know, those data are smaller still, more like a few hundred. Um, and so, um, so typically that's been the number of people and then, you know, um, relatively deep phenotyping, but my own area is not omics data, it's not neuroimaging data, it's tended to be more biomarker data, um, questionnaire data, uh, those sorts of things. I see. And um, I guess for a smaller, uh, as you said, the mechanical side of um, the, the models, uh, how conservative would you say your research field it is in accepting new methods? I think it's actually um, pretty open. You know, I, I think that I'm very, very fortunate um, in the gerontological field that it's really a wonderful thing about this field. I've got to give a little bit of an advertisement um, because gerontologists are wonderfully interdisciplinary. And, you know, there's just mutual respect for 
a huge diversity of fields. Um, and so I've always encountered great mutual respect as a statistician, bringing my science together with you know, the science of epidemiologists and biologists and social scientists. And, you know, so it's absolutely wonderful. And this is a long-winded way of saying that that field is very open to do to new methods, um, actually hungers for new methods. And um, I found that my colleagues have always really tried to to understand at some level, you know, they're, they don't sort of sit back and it's like, oh yeah, go off and, and do that thing and we'll accept it. It's more, oh yeah, that sounds really cool. Let's understand it together, you know, and um, we can move forward. So it's a great field. That's awesome. Um, I suppose mo a lot of your colleagues are epidemiologists. Uh, a, a lot, you know, I yeah. wouldn't say necessarily the majority, but mm -hmm. you know, um, a lot of them are. Um, I think most of our audience are still on the biostatistics side. So uh, from your point of view, what is the difference between epidemiology and biostatistics in your wow, research? Wow, you're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, but so uh, just off the cuff, you know, so I, I consider epidemiology to be substantively concerned with characterizing population health. Um, and so that's everything from basically characterizing the, the distribution of health as an outcome, but also to learning about etiological determinants of health in populations. And so certainly they, um, they use methods um, in service of that. They're masters of study design um, in service of that, um, you know, but I think the focus is on the population health, whereas biostatisticians have tended to focus more on the methods themselves and the study designs themselves and elucidating the properties um, of the methods and the study designs, as well as their application. You know, And so data science is critically about the properties of the application of methods and not only the the theory behind it, you know, so there's a lot of blur, right? There's a lot of epidemiologists who sort of look more like biostatisticians and vice versa, mm -hmm. but that was my best attempt. Sorry if the question was too um, sharp. <laughs> I didn't mean it to be. Like no, that. no. It's um, but it's mainly because I don't think I have an extremely strong um, biostatistics background since I only have a master's degree. Um, but I did encounter a lot of brilliant epidemiologists. They seem to know a lot of statistical method way better than I do. Um, that's why I asked the question and thank you for the answer. Absolutely. I mean, I absolutely would say there are some epidemiologists who essentially are statisticians and vice versa, you know, and that the typical epidemiologist has to be among the most you know, well-versed in the practice of statistics just in the course of doing what they do. For sure. Um, and I guess now I'm going to ask questions about your in, your advice for students or, or people who want to pursue a degree or career in biostatistics. Yeah. Um, so for those people, what advice do you want to give them? Well, that's an open-ended question. <laughs> and... Um, you know, so first of all, I would just sell the field. It's it's a tremendous field. And, you know, it, it offers lifelong opportunity for learning. 
It offers a lot of flexibility. It's super easy to pivot from one specialty area to another. If you love problem solving, it, it's it's a great field. If you love collaboration, it's a great field. So in terms of advice, you know, I, I think that particularly to be a biostatistician, you know, one has to be effective at working with other people. And so to, you know, gain, gain practice and to, to certainly know that that's a, something one enjoys and that, that, that one has skill at to work on communication, being able to um, talk about things in real life language and not just jargon, um, curiosity, you know, being willing to learn about other science is just as important as trying to teach our, our science to them. Um, a second piece of advice, you know, is that, um, you know, it, it does take a certain background in order to um, be able to really thrive in biostatistics. I will say that we're seeing biostatistics, um, you know, broaden. Let me use the term broad, you know, and so I think of paths that are more mechanistic and paths that are more, you know, focused on the data. So for the paths that are more mechanistic, um, a strong background in math is really helpful, you know, and so to really, you know, work on that background, because the way will be a lot easier if, if one has it to start with, and if one has to pick it up along the way, in, in terms of the more data oriented um, pathways, computing often turns out to be, you know, super important. So that would be you know, a, a skill to to really hone and to be comfortable with rather than trying to, to learn it along the way. And to the extent of bringing both of those backgrounds, you know, better, better still. Um, so maybe I'll pause there and see if there was any aspect you had hoped I would address, but I didn't. Um, not really, it's more of an open-ended question. Actually, I was going to ask you a question about it would be my last question, but before I ask that, uh, is there anything else that you want to share? I, I don't think so, other than, you know, just to repeat what a great field this is. You know, I've always felt privileged to be a part of it. And, um, you know, if anybody's listening to the podcast, thinking about this as a potential field, um, it's it's fantastic and would urge people to, you know, keep checking it out and you know, pursue it if it, it seems well suited to yourself. Yeah, I definitely feel the same way, although I haven't been in the field for too long, but it's definitely great to be here. Um, so my one last question would be, what is one question that you wish I asked and how would you have answered it? It's basically about, uh, it could be about some questions that I didn't ask, but you thought you should share. So one question that's that's sometimes interesting to um, think about is, is, is there anything you wish you knew back in the day, anything you wish you would have done differently? And um, so, you know, I let me quick ask you, is this is this podcast directed to students mainly or is it also to um, faculty more generally and and and, you know, Oh, people who are professionals already? Um, I think it's to all of those because I do uh, talk to people from different fields and diff both industry and academia. But yeah, you can just share whatever you want because I'm sure there are people who still don't know the difference between those, um, I guess, 
path? I'll share two things, one for students and one for already existing professionals. And so, you know, for for students, um, one of my most important mentors, um, actually in aging, not in biostatistics, you know, always insists that everybody sits at the table. And what, what that means is that if you're, you know, in a, a, a group of scientists, too often, I think statisticians sort of sit on the side as if they're not the real scientists and the real scientists are together at the table. And, um, you know, ab- absolutely sit at the table, <laughs> be be in the thick of things and don't hesitate to uh, ask general questions. You know, you don't have to stay in your lane. You're a scientist like anybody else. And, um, you know, and so that that has been enormously valuable to me in my career. And that starts as a student you know, to, to not necessarily just feel like you have to sit quietly um, when scientific conversations are going on around you, be a part of it and ask questions at seminars and, and that sort of thing. And then for, you know, already professionals, um, I, I think that a, a big mistake that I made early in my career was to try to um be everything to everyone, you know, which is to say that, you know, I, I was so much of a collaborator, so focused on doing things for, um, you know, others, that I both didn't pay enough attention to getting my own science out, you know, which was valuable too. Uh, I think that it could improve the world for that science to get out, um, as well as it just wasn't sustainable. And so, you know, it really urged the um, professionals out there, you know, to find a good match of absolutely being a good team player and, and helping other people, but treating your own work as of as much importance as the concern as others, um, you know, because you have something great to offer too. Wow, that's great advice. Thank you so much. And uh, I guess that concludes our podcast today and thank you so much for joining i learned so much about aging and yeah other things too i've really enjoyed it thank you so much for inviting me thank you thank you for diving in and we'll see you in the next episode